Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Premed Year, session number 256. Hello and welcome to the three-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. I'm excited for today's episode, announcing a brand new medical school. Now, the guest I have today has had a vision of what medicine should be for a long time, and now as the dean of the Carl Illinois College of Medicine, Dr. King Lee can now put that vision into practice as the dean of a medical school that is trying to merge technology and engineering into the medical curriculum. And we dive into why the medical school came about, what his vision for the school is, how he is hoping that with the curriculum and the full-time faculty there, thinking through all these problems with the students, helping them think through these problems, he is going to talk about the vision that he sees for the future of graduates of Carl Illinois College of Medicine. King, thank you for joining me here on the pre-med years. I'm excited to be able to talk to you. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm great, as usual. How does a man named King go on to be a physician? What led you down this path to, to be a doctor? Well, I think uh, it's really a uh, merging of uh, different uh, impacts. So uh, from my uh, upbringing, we are taught to... Uh, uh, really, the goal in life is to make positive impact to society. And uh, as I look around different careers, uh, I decided that uh, being a physician can certainly make a positive impact to society. And uh, at the same time, uh, I was very attracted to engineering and technology. And when I learned that, uh, you can apply the uh, skills in engineering and technology to really improve uh, healthcare, 
and uh, my mind was made up. What did that look like for you? Because I think a lot of people, and and this will lead into our, our discussion later on, but a lot of people, when they think about medicine, they that additional piece of engineering technology doesn't come into play. Why why was that kind of at the beginning of your your thoughts? Well, if you really look at the uh, tremendous development in medicine, a lot of them are actually uh, uh, stimulated by technology. Uh, for example, right, the uh, development of the CT scanner and the MR scanner fundamentally changed the way we uh, take care of a lot of patients. So uh, when I was in college, the CT scanner was just introduced. And that is a merging of a lot of engineering and technology, but have tremendous uh, applications in medicine. And imagine uh, you do not have to open up right, a patient's body to look inside and already uh, can make the diagnosis by just taking images right, inside the body. So uh, when I was in uh, medical school, uh, I was deciding on different uh, specialties, and that's when MRI just got started. So that's why you know I got attracted to the discipline of radiology and become a radiologist because that's the uh, discipline at that time that I felt uh, really married engineering and technology and medicine the most. And uh, I never regretted that decision. And uh, uh, and now I'm the dean of a uh, college of medicine that is the world's first engineering-focused uh, college of medicine. So it really uh, it exemplifies how someone in the pre-med year can uh, just follow the passion and uh, and everything can work out. I think it's kind of ironic that technology drew you to radiology and we're in a phase now in, in, a, in a time where with machine learning and, and artificial intelligence, radiology might be the one of the first um, specialties that's very affected by the new, new technologies to where we don't need as many radiologists as we have now. Right. I mean, I think that's uh, something that the whole uh, healthcare industry is going to face, right? If you look at uh, how uh, technology and engineering has transformed many industries, and uh, you can say, for example, in the retail industry, electronic retail has replaced a lot of the brick and mortar stores, right? So mm -hmm. imagine the day that driverless car become the dominant mode of uh, transportation, right? Then uh, how about the taxi drivers, the bus drivers, and so on, right? So we shouldn't be afraid of uh, the impact of technology and engineering, but we should stay ahead of the curve and turn the table around and say, how can we leverage engineering technology to improve healthcare in the, in the way that can increase quality, decrease cost, and also increase accessibility, right? So for example, if you use radiology as an example, imagine the day you need very little human intervention in terms of interpreting the images, that would democratize, right, the, uh, the availability of very high quality diagnostic tools to many more people. Mm -hmm. So we should 
welcome that change rather than being afraid of that change. I I very much welcome that change. It's the radiologists that are making three hundred thousand dollars a year that are scared of that change. Well, you the the way that physicians that can deal with this change is to say, hey, if this is the part of uh, the job that can be replaced by uh, a machine, what part of the job mm-hmm. cannot be replaced by machine, right? So, and that doesn't apply just to radiology, but all parts of medicine, right? So imagine uh, what we can do in a uh, ambulatory clinic, right? Think about it. Uh, you know, most of the diagnostic tools we, we use in an ambulatory clinic are very old. Think of a stethoscope that was discovered 200 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. An autoscope is about 180 years old. So a lot of those technology can be replaced by modern day technology that are more accurate, right? Uh, and at the same time can be done remotely, right? So if you also uh, put in other types of remote sensing and also ways to capture the history, uh, you may be able to replace most of what we do in the amplitude clinic uh, and and not really need a physician to do that. So you think about that, right? Radiology may not be the only uh, discipline that would be impacted. In fact, a lot of the... uh, practice of medicine can be revolutionized yeah. using technology and engineering approaches. I'm excited to see that future where that Star Trek future where we have the tricorder that just waves over you and we have a <laughs> diagnosis and you just jump into a pod and you get your treatment and it's, it'll well, be very interesting. I, I think that's a progression, but but if you, if you think, if you ask people, right, uh, if you walk into a doctor's office, today versus 30 years ago, what technology has changed significantly? Uh, I would say that not a lot, right? Mm-hmm. You still use the telescope, you still use the ophthalmoscope, you still use the autoscope, those yeah. hasn't changed, right? So, but if you look at the rest of the uh, uh, society, right? You know, uh, 20 years ago, you don't even have a smartphone, right? And uh, Google now really uh, is the dominant way we get information and we can get a lot of information very quickly. And that is really different than when I first started the practice of medicine, when you have to carry a lot of information in your head because it's hard, right, to take up that information. So the whole process of uh, training and practice has to follow right, the changes in technology, but we are not really changing it in a way that is keeping up with the changes in uh, technology and also with society. So King, as, as you were practicing as a physician, you had this passion for technology. How were you utilizing that passion in your practice? Well, so imagine, um, uh, we, I, I, I do so-called the tripartite mission, right? So, so I was always in academic medicine. So technology really was a way that we can use leverage to improve not just patient care, but also education. And of course, in research, right? So, 
So that all that have been affected in uh, you know the by by the by the rapid changes in technology, and and that brings us to today, right? So so that's why you know I truly believe, together with many people, that uh, the educational mission uh, and uh, uh, clinical mission have been falling tremendously behind. Uh, modern day uh, development in engineering and technology, and and mostly because the, of the skewed incentives that we have in the, the healthcare industry. So imagine, right? Uh, in all other industry, technology has been able to drive up quality and drive down cost, whereas in the healthcare industry. Uh, technology has been blamed for driving up costs instead of driving down costs, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to look at the reason why, right? And how, you know, the next generation of physician innovators has to become the catalyst so that engineering and technology can be used just like any other industry to drive up quality and drive down costs and increase accessibility. I had this discussion recently with a interventional cardiologist uh, on my other podcast, Specialty Stories, and he was talking about there's a, a threat of decreasing reimbursements from from Medicare and Medicaid, and and I I asked that specific question. I said, well, don't you think that the technologies that you're using have been out long enough now that they're getting cheaper? Why wouldn't they reduce? The cost, and he's like, "Well, there's still physicians that are getting up in the middle of the night and doing the work, and and so it's there's always that argument of, well, I I still need my pay, right? So so if you really look at what drives the cost up, right, the the three major things, uh, especially in the U.S. healthcare system, one is uh, labor costs, right? Mm -hmm. The second is uh, drug costs. And third, especially in this country, is administrative costs because we have so many different types of uh, uh, insurance company and so on. You need to uh, do all types of uh, uh, different billings because of the uh, different reimbursement schemes and so on, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, to the extent that we can actually decrease the labor cost uh, using engineering and technology, you can help drive down the cost, right? So, so a lot of the tasks that we are using humans to do, especially now, right? You have doctors that are spending hours just uh, entering uh, data into the electronic health record, right? Imagine all that can be replaced. Then you can pro uh, actually provide more person-to-person uh, -person care, but at the same time drive down the cost. So uh, a lot of the research that has been done in the past in healthcare is mostly disease oriented, right? Imagine uh, another way of treating a particular disease and not really uh, in the process, improving the process of healthcare delivery, right? That's why you see bigger and better and more expensive machines in the hospitals, but very little improvement in the ambulatory clear environment, right? Which mm -hmm. is really unfortunate because that's where you can actually impact a lot more patients yeah. and very good preventive care, right? Imagine if I can develop a kiosk where you have very minimal uh, a personal uh, 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 personnel requirement but can deliver 
the same quality or even higher quality care uh, than what you can get in the ambulatory clinic. Don't you think the accessibility and the affordability of healthcare would uh, improve? I would hope so. Yes, I mean, yeah. I think that's the driving force, right? Is to re-look at how we do things now and say, how can technology and engineering be deployed to improve things so that we can get higher quality and lower costs and higher accessibility? I love that thinking. I, I'm a very technically oriented person and I, I've always an, been kind of an outside the box thinker. The problem with that in in medicine is that that's not how students are taught. But the Carl Illinois College of Medicine is changing all of that or is hoping to change all of Absolutely. that. Talk about the the brainchild. Whose brainchild was this design of a medical school? Right. I think it's really a collective effort, right? So I think the concept of having an engineering focus, College of Medicine, uh, really was developed uh, when the, uh, the previous chancellor here, uh, uh, Dr. Phyllis Weiss, uh, commissioned this strategic plan. And uh, when they compared this particular uh, institution to others, they find that the major difference is this institution had tremendous engineering technology and, in fact, a strong across the board. This is a truly comprehensive uh, university. And uh, especially, you know, the, the College of Engineering has been strong for years and years. So if you look at the com uh, competitive advantage, uh, you know, if they have to add another uh, school of medicine, uh, you know, it makes sense to really do something fundamentally different and have uh, high impact. And, uh, and then, you know, comes the idea of marrying engineering with medicine. So how does it manifest in terms of implementation? And that's when uh, my team comes in, right? And as you say, if you really want to build an engineering-focused college of medicine, how would you design it so that you can make biggest positive impact to uh, the society and uh, not just regionally, nationally, but globally? So that's how we position this uh, new college of medicine. I think one of the fears for, if I were to picture myself as a pre-med student again, knowing what I know about the process and residencies and everything else, one of the biggest fears that I would see with a, a new school like this with such grand uh, hopes and, and what they want to accomplish is as a student and somebody who's going to apply to residencies, I'm still being judged on the basics, right? Step one and mm -hmm. step two. How, how are you hoping to accomplish preparing students for the, the standard academic kind of boxes that we have to put every student in, but also adding all of this extra with the technology, the engineering-based side of things as well? Well, I think that's a major misconcept that most people have about our curriculum. Uh, we are actually not adding 
we are substituting. So imagine the way you learn about cardiovascular disease uh, in the old way of teaching, right? So you have to memorize a lot of stuff because a lot of stuff cannot be derived from first principles, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, you say, hey, you know, why do plaques form in the branching points of vessels? So instead of, you know, just telling you the fact, we will start with... uh, uh, fluid dynamics, right? So you understand the shear forces will be highest in the branching points, and especially if you form a small plaque, then there will be even more turbulence, and that will cause even more, right, damage to the uh, area. So that type of uh, understanding allow you to not memorize stuff, right? So. So the same thing, if you actually try to understand microbiology, the way we used to do it is to memorize every single organism, whether it's gram-positive, gram-negative, right? What antibiotics they would respond to, what type of disease they would cause, and so on. But if I ask you a question, right, if you have a new emerging disease, what type of new intervention you would need to do to decrease the damage of that emerging disease, how do you even go about doing that, right? Mm -hmm. So we will introduce the concept of uh, mathematical modeling, right? Understanding the basic concepts of what factors need to be, right, thought through in determining, right, what interventions need to be used in a particular situation, then you're really looking at uh, microbiology in a totally different way, right? So luckily, right, the board is also uh, responding to the fact that uh, memorization is not the answer. So most of the board exam is catered to problem solving, right? Mm. So, so how do you derive uh, from whatever way you learn the knowledge to come to the solution is really uh, independent, right? So. So instead of memorization and understanding the application, which are the first three steps in so-called the learning pyramid, we will go all the way to the next three levels, all the way to creativity, okay? So if we can prepare our students so that they can do very, very well in the boards, but at the same time, prepare them so that they can actually be encouraged to have curiosity and creativity, then, you know, we have a fundamentally different uh, medical education. What sort of students are you hoping to attract to, to Carl? Okay, so the fundamentals first uh, is that uh, in addition to, uh, you know, the traditional pre-med requirements, we will have uh, requirements on the quantitative science. So all the incoming students would have to have high-level mathematics, uh, have some uh, knowledge in computer science, and uh, also statistics. But fundamentally, we're actually looking for four different qualities, right? We call them the four Cs. One is uh, compassion, and the second is uh, uh, competence, and then curiosity, and also creativity. I think compassion and competence is uh, generally accepted as the most fundamental 
requirements of being a physician, but curiosity and creativity are not uh, qualities that are being stressed, right, in traditional medical education. In fact, there's a saying in medicine that you see one, you do one, and you teach one, right, which is very much an apprenticeship system. At the same time, you typically don't challenge the so-called standard of practice. But the way we structure our curriculum, uh, every student in a required clinical rotation will be required to come up with a new idea to change things. So they're encouraged to challenge the existing paradigm. And to help them, we have engineering rounds where the students will be uh, exposed to engineering faculty uh, uh, clinicians at the same time to bounce their new ideas around. So by the time they finish the rotation, they should have a very well-developed idea that they can present. And out of all these uh, uh, new ideas, one will be selected for their capstone project, which in the fourth year, they will be asked to take the idea all the way to a prototype. And to do that, there will be a leader of a team of other students. And we have sign-up sheets across the campus for other uh, students from other colleges and uh, our medical students would actually select a team and lead that team to take an idea to prototype. So it can be a software program, it can be a new device and so on. But you know this is built into our curriculum so that our students will become hopefully well-trained physician innovators uh, rather than just uh, traditionally trained physicians. So when one of those students develops the next multi-billion dollar device, who owns the patents to that? Uh, that's still <laughs> ongoing consideration, but clearly the student will have some ownership. Yeah. I, it's always a question at the top of my mind because I went to the University of Florida where Gatorade was developed. And it's, it's always this ongoing uh, joke that the, the poor guy that developed Gatorade was an employee of the university. So the university got most of that money. <laughs> Uh, well, I think uh, now the the patent, uh, uh, the intellectual property rules are very well established. So, so a lot of uh, the uh, rewards actually go to the inventors. Yeah, it sounds exciting. But you mentioned something about the the classes that you're going to expect a student to to have. And as you're searching for your first class, which you're hoping uh, to fill immediately, basically for next year, for, for August of 2018, what if there's a student out there listening to this going, this is exactly what I, what I hoped to do as a physician, but they don't have those, those higher level mathematical classes because they never realized they needed them? Well, so we actually don't stress particular courses as long as you can demonstrate that you have the ability to do it, then mm. we will discuss with you how uh, we, we, you know, can, can assess you in a way that may not exclude you from our program. Okay, very interesting. It sounds like that that sort of, of outlook is more of a competency-based uh, outlook. Is that what you're hoping when you're grading medical students and determining if they're ready to move on to the next phase? Is, is Are you hoping for competency-based 
uh, evaluation? So, so just to, to give you a flavor of how we will deliver our curriculum. So we, of course, uh, have uh, a lot of ideas of leveraging uh, engineering and technology also in our medical education. So the, uh, the mode of uh, learning will be uh, case-driven, problem-based active learning. So our students will be divided into eight students in a group, and they will be asked to solve cases together. And uh, so, you know, in the case uh, uh, format, we can throw in a lot of different elements, not just the basic science, not just the engineering, not just the clinical science, but also even a social and humanistic elements. For example, if a patient can't even have enough money to fill a prescription, so how do you going to treat this particular patient, right? And you can throw in a lot of uh, this type of uh, complexity in that. And to actually enhance the ability of our students gaining competence, we will use a lot of simulation. So I think a lot of uh, medical schools have used a simulation, both in uh, using uh, actors, actresses as patients and building right physical simulation rooms. So you have rooms that uh, are built like inpatient wards or outpatient clinics and ICUs and emergency rooms and use mannequins for uh, practice and so on. I think, of course, we have that. We're building a jump simulation center uh, for physical simulation. But the second and third level of simulation is not widely used. Second level is called cognitive simulation, essentially video games, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine building video games that are part of the case. So you are learning heart failure, then I can give many different types of uh, scenarios of heart failure, patients with diabetes, other social disease, or, or, or more uh, simplistic uh, uh, cases. And the students would have to write, uh, uh, do the right uh, uh, treatment. And then there will be score immediately, just like any uh, video game, right? So, so that way they can gain the competence of treating diseases uh, instead of seeing real patients, right? Just like uh, you know, uh, pilots uh, learn how to fly planes now. Instead of flying the real plane, they fly the simulator first for many hours. So this is similar. And the third level is the most exciting is the virtual reality and augmented reality world, right? That you can do simulation in that world. And we're also building programs that allow us to actually transport, right, students and instructors into this virtual reality world and do simulations there. So that way, right, you can see our students can gain competence a lot faster using this type of approach. At the same time, we will also give our uh, students uh, basic uh, uh, so-called knowledge training using personalized interactive online training. So if you give a lecture, then you have to cater to every person in the room. Usually you go down to the lowest denominator, common de denominator. But in a personalized online approach, we give you assessment and say, hey, what do you know and what do you don't know? After the assessment, we can give you a number of modules that we feel that you need 
And after doing those modules, of course, you get assessed again. If you still don't know the stuff, then you go back to do the modules. But if you're so smart that you can test out of all the modules, then you can accelerate your progress, right? That would free our students up to actually explore their interests and, and explore using curiosity and creativity uh, much sooner than uh, even their clinical years. Uh, so built into all this is a lot of free time, right? So our the number of contact hours is typically less than 25 hours per week. So, you know, if they can learn the basic material and, and you know, go through those contact hours and still have free time, they are free to explore both in the university and in the cow health system to find interesting projects they can do. Wow. And so so we, we, we wanted to be very personalized and very tailored uh, and give our students a lot of freedom. You were talking about the, the small groups and more of the problem-based learning, and that's, that's something that, that we do here at the University of Colorado where I, I teach a little bit. Mm-hmm. The small groups here are led by a physician, a physician who's gone through the standard medical school curriculum which hasn't changed in forever how how are your small groups being led to encourage more of that engineering more of that technological discussion as well right so in fact the cases every case is built by uh you know a uh, engineer the basic scientist and a clinician so the material uh, include everything, and of course, the the medical humanities is also put into as a horizontal track. And uh, uh, we actually have full time professional facilitators that are trained to actually bring out the different aspects of the case. It's not just the clinical aspects, but uh, engineering aspects and the basic science aspects and the humanistic aspects. So we actually have full-time facilitators instead of uh, having physicians come in, you know, for a few sessions at a time, we are hiring full-time professionals to do that. Uh, And of course, you know, uh, we will train up other people to learn from them along the way so that we can actually have uh, a much bigger group of uh, facilitators later on. But in the first phase, we will have full-time facilitators. Wow, that sounds great. When you're looking at where you want your graduates to have an impact in medicine, where are you hoping they go? What are you hoping they do? This is a very common question. And uh, first, all of our graduates will be well-trained to move on into traditional residency and become very competent uh, physicians. But because of the uh, tremendous uh, background that they have, some of them may choose to go into other areas, uh, including policy, including administration, including NGOs, and so on. And of course, industry. Uh, So we don't really try to you know, groom them into any particular direction. The only thing we would assess uh, is whether they make positive impacts, right? 
So, so what we hope that we can say, uh, you know, 10, 20 years from now, is that our graduates actually will hit uh, the entire spectrum of uh, healthcare delivery, uh, and uh, and all of them, and becoming fantastic physician innovators and physician leaders. And if that's the case, we'll be very satisfied. So, so uh, you know, to to answer you directly, we actually don't legislate uh, any particular path for them. And and to 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 bring home the point that we will give them exposure, uh, three hundred and sixty degree as a degree of uh, of our healthcare industry. Every week we have actually two hours of uh, 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 blue sky interactive sessions where we'll invite uh, a representative from every part of the healthcare industry to come and do something like a TED talk and then have discussions uh, with our students so that uh, they would be open up to exposure to really the entire healthcare industry uh, in 360 degrees. And then you know, they can choose whatever they excite them, right? And, and go into that. So, so we are very uh, uh, deliberate in trying to make our students uh, really as broadly trained as possible. I wish that was something as as I went through my traditional medical school training and talking to a lot of physicians now, we're we're not exposed to enough out there because we're we're so focused on the the core sciences and getting good grades on our our steps that we're we're missing out on unlearning about healthcare. So Absolutely. It's, but, but remember the way we were assessed, right? A lot of it is in the lower level of the learning pyramid. Mm-hmm. A lot of memorization, understanding, and at most, application, right? We are never assessed, really, uh, whether we can uh, go into the last three phases, which is evaluation, analysis, and creativity. And, and in our curriculum, we want to take our student all the way to the peak of that learning pyramid. At the end of the day, how will you judge whether or not Carl has done a good job training its students? Well, the feedback, right, is most important. The feedback from our students, the feedback from all the people that interact with our students at Carl, and then Lastly, right, the feedback from uh, the people that interact with our graduates, no matter what uh, 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 you know path they choose, right? Imagine they go into a traditional residency, and the residency director say, "Wow, you know your students are so different, and they are definitely a catalyst of change." At the same time, they are as competent as anyone trained anywhere else then we will agree that our program together with Carl is uh, satisfying really the needs of our students. But at the same time, you know, if we find that there are some weaknesses uh, in our program, then we'll be changing it almost real time. So in fact, uh, we're working with our College of Education to really uh, look at a lot of different monitoring and assessment techniques that will allow us to actually make changes uh, very quickly rather than waiting years, right, to find out that there are deficiencies in the program. 
One of the questions that comes up a lot for new schools with pre-meds is they hear that the school is only preliminarily accredited. How do you assure a student that, that wants to apply to Carl, how do you assure them that they should get over that fear and, and take the chance <laughs> in a new school? Well, first, you know, this uh, name is, uh, uh, I would say, is almost, almost a misnomer. So the, in the LCME point of view, any student that get accepted into a program that have preliminary accreditation status would be guaranteed that they can take the board exam and uh, eventually uh, become a board certified physician. So, so that's uh, the one thing that uh, prospective students need to know is that once they get into this program, they're guaranteed that they would go all the way, okay? So, so it's not like, oh, well, you know, would they be shut down by the LCME in two years or whatever? That's not true, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so they will be guaranteed that they will be able to sit for the ports. Uh, the second thing is, you know, if you anyone that study how uh, LCME actually go through the accreditation process, uh, it's very, very rigorous. In fact, uh, I would say that uh, as far as I know, there's no schools that have received preliminary accreditation that have failed to actually eventually be fully accredited. And, and all the accredited, fully accredited schools, even those that have been put on probation, almost none have actually lost accreditation, right? So, so I would say that uh, achieving preliminary accreditation uh, usually means that uh, we have a fantastic chance of just moving down the chain uh, if you look at past records. And the Carl Illinois College of Medicine received its preliminary accreditation recently, and you're ready to accept your first class for 2018. How many students are you looking to um, to accept, and what's the process for for you guys for accepting these new students? We are recruiting for a class of 32 students, and they can go through the uh, regular MCAS process. So we should be showing up in MCAS very soon, and uh, and they can just go through the uh, regular MCAS process. And there's another thing I think prospective students need to know is that uh, we're raising money to give the entire first class four years full scholarships. That means that everyone in our inaugural class would have a free medical education. So it's a tremendously attractive proposition for any uh, prospective students. And we're really looking for students that can help us uh, really co-develop this program so that it can be the best of the best. So uh, we are looking for students who have the innovative drive and also entrepreneurial spirit to come in and actually help develop this revolutionary uh, medical education curriculum together with us. So I've been through the process already, but since it's free tuition, can I apply again? <laughs> it sounds like a great opportunity. <laughs> yeah, right. I think uh, a lot of uh, 
people that heard about this uh, excited. I mean, personally, I would have applied to something like this, right, if that was available available to me at the time. So, so anyone who is really uh, interested in leveraging engineering and technology to change the world of healthcare, I think this is really the place for them. And uh, I guarantee you that uh, they will have a very different education and we will pour enough personal care and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, and really help them develop to be the person they want to be. You know, we don't do cookie cutter type of training. We will always be uh, small classes. So we hope to grow to 64 uh, in a class, and that's the maximum we'll go because we want it to be high-quality, personalized uh, uh, experience for every one of our students. King, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure the, the student knows? I think uh, another major aspect uh, that is different in our school is that most medical schools, in fact, almost all medical schools, hire full-time faculty into the College of Medicine. So, uh, but in our comprehensive university, we already have so many experts in so many fields. We are leveraging across the board to get the best of the best from every college. And for example, in our first 125 faculty, they come from nine different colleges and also at call. So that way, you know, we can actually dynamically change the, the, the expertise and the quality of uh, our faculty almost on the fly. So, so that's another innovative aspect of our, of our uh, College of Medicine. And another thing is we're also developing a very innovative uh, research program uh, that is mirrored uh, in, uh, to the uh, uh, medical education program to revolutionize the way we do uh, biomedical research. So our students will be exposed to some really uh, fundamentally different thinking also in the biomedical research world. When a student who graduates from Carl, at the end of her career, she's looking back at her career, what do you want her to remember Carl by the education that she got at Carl that, that let left that impact on her career right i wish they would say that place opened my mind okay so because no matter how good your education is or the techniques or the knowledge you learn will become old and obsolete but you know if someone can open your mind and make you become a better person i think that's the most uh, lasting effect so if uh, graduates uh, can look back and say, hey, this is really a life-changing experience that opened my mind. And I think that will be a very rewarding thing for anyone involved in uh, education. All right, so there you have it again. That was Dr. King Lee with the Carl Illinois College of Medicine in Champaign, Illinois. If you want more info, go to medicine.illinois.com. Edu. If you are local to the area or you can travel on October 21st and November 18th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Carl Illinois College of Medicine will have 
two showcases, again, October 21st and November 18th, to give prospective students the chance to see firsthand what the Carl Illinois experience will be like. You'll meet the dean and leadership and faculty, and you'll explore the many facets of the program that await the first class in July. As of this recording, the AMCAS application is not available yet. Keep checking back. Follow AMCAS on Twitter. Keep checking back on the AMCAS website. As soon as the school is available in AMCAS, send in your application. Again, Carl Illinois College of Medicine accepting 32 students for their first class to start in July of 2018. And all 32 students will be on a full ride four-year scholarship. Amazing opportunity to be one of the first students or to be the first students at a new medical school hoping to change the way medicine is taught in this country. If I had to do it all over again, I would jump at this chance to apply to Carl, Illinois. It sounds like an amazing opportunity and an amazing team of people there to lead the way. All right, that's all I have for you this week. Stay tuned next week. We have another great episode coming your way. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on MedEd Media and the Pre-Med Years.